Good morning again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. As we continue our worship this morning in the Word, let's go ahead and take a few moments to, to bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can meet together during the season of Advent, and we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Father, as we continue our worship in your word, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts and minds for the truths that are in it. Pray, Lord, that we would just get out of the way, Lord, and help us to really take in what you have for us. And so what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you make us. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the story of Christmas is a story about one surprise after another. I was with our kids this past week and I asked them the question. I said, what do you think is the biggest surprise about Christmas? And one of them rightly observed and said, the fact that God became a babe in a manger. And I said, yeah, that's pretty surprising. My wife was over listening in the, uh, in the kitchen and she yelled out and she said, uh, the most surprising thing is the fact that Mary had to give birth in a filthy manger. That was <laughs> surprising. This morning, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. And we're going to talk about something else that's surprising in light of the fact that Christ came as a babe in a manger who would grow up to die on a cross. Now, we're going to be in Galatians 3.23. We'll be reading all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what changed as a result of Christ's coming. What changed for us as believers as a result of Christ's coming as a babe in a manger who was the savior of the world who was born to die? As you head there in your Bibles, it's always helpful to be reminded of the context of the letter. Um, Galatians is written with the sole purpose by Paul to the Galatian churches and the believers throughout the region there in order to declare and to defend the one true gospel. That in Christ, as believers, we are justified by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. And as Paul has been defending it, there's a reason why. False teachers, as we've been reminded of, have come in. They have taught that faith in Jesus is important, but that faith in Jesus is not enough. If you want to have your salvation, not only do you need to trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross, but you need to trust in your own religious activity. You need to, as a Gentile, become a Jew, be circumcised, and walk in obedience to the law. And some of the believers within the Galatian churches had been led astray. And so, beginning in chapter 3, Paul has been calling these believers back to the truth. And as he continues to call these believers back to the truth, he shares with them what changed as a result of Christ's coming. And he reminds them, don't go back. And so, would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? Galatians 3, will be in verse 23 and following. What changed as a result of Christ's coming? In other words, what difference does Christmas make? Verse 23 reads this way. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not God's. But now after you have known God, or rather known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and uh, beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. As we walk through our text, we're going to talk about what difference does Christmas make? Uh, what changed as a result of Christ's coming? We're going to see four things in our text together. The first thing I want to take a look at is uh, what changed as a result of Christ's coming? Because Christ came, we're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the law. This has been a theme that Paul has been going back to again and again. Part of the reason is the false teacher said, you're not justified by faith alone in Christ. You're justified by the works of the law and your obedience to it. And so Paul reminds these believers who had put their faith in him and had strayed, come back to the truth. You're no longer under the law. And Paul describes the law in a couple ways. First, he describes it as a prison under which they were held captive and needed to be delivered. And secondly, he describes it as a tutor, a disciplinarian, a strict disciplinarian of whom they needed to be delivered that pointed them to Christ. Paul puts it this way, beginning in verse 23, he says, but before faith came, before Christ was revealed and before the Galatian believers had, to, had the opportunity to put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ, it says, we were kept under guard by the law. What does it mean to be kept under guard by the law? Well, it means to be held captive by the law. It means to be under the, in the prison under captivity of the law. And the question then is, is, how is it that we are held captive by the law? How is it that before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law? Well, we know that if anyone has ever lived under the law, you know the struggle that that may be. If you live under the law and you are trying to earn God's favor by means of your obedience to the law, you find at a certain point where you realize that you can't keep the whole thing. And as you keep the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the summation of the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the truth is we all fail in some regard. And for those who are under the law, trying to earn the favor of God under the law, because the penalty for sin is death, we all who are under the law stand condemned. And so those who stand condemned under the law working to gain God's favor are those who are in bondage, 
are those who need to be delivered from the law. And so Paul declares it here. He says that before faith came, we were kept under, under the law in this capacity. It served as a prison that we need to be delivered from. You know, back in chapter 3, verse um, 19, Paul told us what the purpose of the law was. The purpose of the law was to reveal our sin and to point us to our need for Christ. And when we realize how far we fail God in regards to trying to keep the law, it drives us to a place of faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So Paul first describes the law as a prison that we need to be delivered from. Secondly, Paul describes the law as a tutor that we need to be delivered from as well, and it points us to Christ. Paul continues and says in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Now, the law is not bad. The law serves a purpose. But the purpose of the law, while it was necessary, it was also only temporary. The law served the purpose of, as our disciplinarian, as our guardian, as our tutor, to point us to Christ. As a tutor, in the first century, uh, a slave or a servant would come alongside of a child and as their guardian or as their tutor, they would, they would be similar to a strict disciplinarian and as they brought them to school and brought them back, they would train them, they would discipline them. But while the tutor can be good in some ways because it provides discipline, the tutor is a strict disciplinarian in the sense that you can never please the tutor. The tutor disciplines and the tutor punishes, but the tutor can never be satisfied. Why? Because we fall short in our own flesh, in our inability to fulfill the whole law. The tutor only served a necessary purpose and a temporary purpose, but we needed to be delivered from the tutor in order to bring us to Christ, which is why in verse 24 it says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so the tutor doesn't justify us by the works of the law. It, we are, it leads us to be justified, declared righteous in a right standing with God by faith. And then verse 25 declares this. This is the good news. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the purpose of the law was necessary in its time, but it was only temporary. And the law, which is described as a, as a prison that held us captive, that we needed to de be delivered from in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the law, which is described as a tutor, is what we were delivered from in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the question we're answering together is what changed as a result of Christ coming as a babe in a manger who would grow up to die on a cross? What changed is that as believers, we're no longer under the law. As believers, we no longer need to be delivered from the prison of the law, and we need no longer need to be delivered from the tutor, this strict disciplinarian that we could never please, and the law served its purpose, but now that faith has come in Christ, that purpose is no longer there. And so the question I want us to consider is, what difference does Christmas make? What difference does the fact that Christ came make? Well, let me say this. If Christ had not come, you and I would still be under the law. If Christ had never come and was born in a manger and died on a cross and took our place, we would still be under the law. Number one, we would still be under the curse of the law. 
Back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, we were told what the curse of the law is. For as many as are of the works of the law, those who obey God as a means of trying to earn his favor and a right standing with God. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. If you were able to live perfectly and fulfill the law completely, then you could be in a right standing with God. But the problem is, in our sinful state, we cannot please God that way. And in our sinful state, we fall short, which is why we need a Savior. James 2, 10 through 11 told us this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. We've been delivered from that. We don't have to earn the favor of God through the law. James 3, 2, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. Ecclesiastes 7.20, for there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Here's the good news. Because we fall short, because of our sinful state and our hearts that are wayward, we cannot please God through obedience to the law, but thank God that Jesus was born in a manger and died on a cross so we don't have to be under the law and therefore stand condemned by it. So first off, because Christ came, if Christ did not come, we would still be under the curse of the law. Secondly, if Christ did not come, we would still be waiting for him. We would still be eagerly anticipating him. Church, this is awesome because we're reminded in light of scripture that we live at a unique time in redemptive history. We live between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. For thousands of years, they were eagerly waiting the anticipated Messiah, but we live in between the first and the second coming of Christ, and we're waiting for his second coming. You know, the scripture talks about the last days, and a lot of folks ask, are we living in the last days? And the answer is yes, because the last days refer to the time period between the first and the second coming of Christ, and we're closer to the end times today than we were yesterday. And so, because of the fact that we are living in this unique time in history, we're not waiting for Christ to come to redeem us of our sins. We're waiting for Christ to come back to set up his kingdom and reign and rule forevermore. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10 through 12, this was the announcement given to the shepherds. They had been waiting for centuries, and this is what they are told. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. If you as a sinful man or woman are confronted by an angel of light who has been in the presence of God, our immediate response is probably fear. Why? Because we're sinful people. <laughs> We might fall face down. Who am I, a man of sinful, sinful lips that, you would, that I can even stand before you? But he tells, the, he tells the shepherds, the angels, listen, don't be afraid. I've got some good news for you, not bad news. You're not going to be condemned. This is good news. Verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. These are the people who had been waiting under the law, under the, the law which is described as a prison that they needed to be delivered from, the law which was described as a tutor which they needed to be delivered from. And here's the good news, for there is born to you in the city of David 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is your deliverer, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is good news this morning. We don't have to wait any longer. The Messiah, the Christ, has come 2,000 years ago. And so the question for you and I this morning is if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, what are you waiting for? These individuals had been waiting for centuries, for millennium, for the Christ to come. And now the Christ has come. What do they do as shepherds? They go and they go find him. If you're here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus, the invitation is to get to know him, to admit your need for him, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world, and to confess Jesus as your Savior and Lord, receiving the free gift of Christmas. If you've heard this good news that Jesus has come, and we don't have to wait for him any longer, not only receive Christ, I want to share Christ. There are people all around me who don't know Christ, who have not been justified by faith, having trusted in what Christ has done for them, and we have a message to share with them. The reason God hasn't taken you yet, even though you're a believer, even though you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and your Lord, is because there are still people who need to know who Jesus is, and you have the privilege and opportunity to share that with them. And so we're invited to get to know Christ who has been revealed, to share Christ who has been revealed, and thirdly, to enjoy Christ. And that's why we come to church. We celebrate the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We worship him and we share him with a lost world who needs him. So what what changed as a result of Christ's coming? First, we're no longer under the law. Secondly, as we continue to read verses 26 to 29, we've now joined the family of God. You know, Paul is calling these believers back to the truth. He says, apart from Christ, you were under the law. Why do you want to go back? But now that you have Christ, why would you want to leave? Because you have become part of the family of God. In other words, you've been united with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Paul goes on in verse 26. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is good news here. When faith came, when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, he reminds these Galatian believers, and we're reminded here today, the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus is the moment you were declared sons of God. Adult sons with all of the privileges that come with being God's children. Let me read to you some of those blessings and benefits through faith in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Listen, we are sons of God with all of the privileges that come as adult children of his. How did we become adopted? How did we become sons of God? Is it because we 
obey the law or earn the favor of God by the works that we did? No. The text says that we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Not by the works of the law, but by through faith in Christ are we declared to be sons with all the privileges that come with being sons. So, the reason you and I are sons and daughters of God is not because of our performance, but because of his promise. The reason you and I can stand with the assurance that we are sons of God is not because of our right behavior, but because we have rightly believed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. And because it's not about our performance, but about his promise, he gets all of the glory, honor, and praise. And what Paul is telling these believers, why would you, as received the, having received the privileges as sons, go back to being slaves? Go back to being in bondage to the law. You have been delivered and set free from it. So first, in Christ, they are sons of God. In Christ, we are sons of God by faith in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Secondly, in Christ, we have been baptized into the family of God. The text continues and says in verses 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? We're baptized into the, the family of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is a, a good text to note here. It says, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. And so in Christ, we've been baptized into one body. We have been baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. You know, um, when it comes to Water baptism. Water baptism is symbolic. It demonstrates what happened the moment we trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord when we were united with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. But the moment you trusted in Christ, you were baptized into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. You, the Holy Spirit in, began to indwell you and sealed you until the day of redemption. And that is such great news this morning. And so we're told here, in Christ, we have been baptized into Christ and have what? Have put on Christ. This is fascinating to consider. We have put on Christ in the sense that we have put on the righteousness of Christ. Can you imagine if you and I were still living under the law and we died and we went to heaven and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? And I said, take a look at all of my righteous deeds, God, that I have done on this earth. I know I've made mistakes here and there, but Lord, take a look at all of the good deeds that I've done, how I've helped, kind of the, the, the numbers of times I've, ch I've gone to church, the number of, of times I've tithed. And you know what he would point us to? Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are like an unclean thing and, and all our unrighteousness is like filthy rags. God would say, listen, you can't bring those filthy rags into heaven because they're stained with sin. Yes, you've got some good deeds in there, but they have been stained by your sin. But here's a better thing. This is what we do before we, we, we meet the Lord. What we are called to do is to take off those filthy rags stained with sin, mixed in with a few righteous deeds, 
and give that over to Christ. Come before Jesus Christ and surrender it to him and come to the cross and deal with our sins at the cross. And you know what Christ will do if you put your faith in him, you believe in him. He'll take your filthy rags stained with sin and he'll take it upon himself on the cross. And he died on that cross to pay for all your sins, past, present, and future. And what that demonstrated is that as he took upon himself the filthy rags of your stained sin, he also takes off his robe of righteousness because he perfectly fulfilled the law and he gives it to you and he invites you who have put your faith, your belief in him, your trust in his finished work on the cross. And he says, put on this robe of righteousness. You know, there's a song we sing, clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock. I stand. In 1 Corinthians 12, excuse me, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? He's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All, behold, all things have become new. We're new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, if we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law, the question that always comes up that we've been asking, does that give me license? to sin and the text tells us may it never be we have put on Christ we have put on his righteousness and Paul would say in Romans 6 how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it and so Paul's reminding them in Christ they are sons of God we are sons of God in Christ we've been baptized into the family of God and we put on Christ and then thirdly um, in Christ, we have become one in him. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And so first he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Your race, whether you're Jew or Greek, does not make you any more acceptable to God, less or more acceptable to God, whether you're a Jew or a Greek in Christ. If you're a Jew or a Greek, you don't have more acceptance before God simply based on your race. And then secondly, it says, based on your rank, there is neither slave nor free, whether you're a slave or whether you're a free man, regardless of your social status this morning. In Christ, you are not any more or less acceptable to, be, to God because you're a slave or because you're free or because you're male or because you're female. In Christ, regardless of your rank, your race, or your social background, or your sex, male or female, we're told it doesn't make you any more or less of a son of God if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And we're all equal in Christ. Does that mean there are no distinctions? No, there's still distinctions, but in Christ we are all equal. There are different roles and responsibilities that God describes within the church and within the home. We see that throughout Scripture, but all are equal, and we're like puzzle pieces that fit together within the plan of God to accomplish his purposes. But in Christ, if I'm a man or you're a woman, it doesn't make you any less or more of a son or daughter of God regarding whether or not you're female or male, um, Gentile or Jew 
or slave or free. We are one in Christ, and that is the good news. And then third, fourthly, we are heirs of Christ. Verse 24, therefore, the law was, or excuse me, verse 29, um, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Christ, we're sons of God. In Christ, we've been baptized into him. In Christ, we are one, and in Christ, we are heirs according to the promise. What's the promise? The promise given to Abraham that through faith, we are justified before God. You know, we go back to this verse a lot, but it's helpful to bring more clarification. If we could go back to chapter 3, verse 6, it says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. You want to experience the blessing of Abraham, put your faith in God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, because only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. We've said it before that there's a saying that goes water is thicker, or excuse me, blood is thicker than water. Why? Because it binds you together. If, if you're blood relatives, you have a, a unique connection. But faith is stronger than blood because we're united with Christ by faith and we're united with fellow believers by faith in Jesus, our common profession of faith in him as our savior and as our Lord. So what changed as a result of Christ's coming? Because Christ came as believers, we are members of his family. If Christ had not come and we were still under the law and the consequences therein, if we still stood condemned, we would not be part of the family of God. Why? Because none of us would be good enough to join. The manner in which you join the family of God is by Faith. But because Christ came, things are different. If Christ had not come, we would not have all of the rights and the benefits and the privileges as sons. And so secondly, if Christ has not come, we would not be baptized into the body by the Holy Spirit who indwells us and resides in us. What a wonderful thing that the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You read the book of Acts and you learn that it's not just the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles because they're told in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. What made these early disciples so successful and the Apostles so successful? Was it their education? Was it their their intellect? Was it their resources? No, it was the power of the Holy Spirit who indwelt them. Apart from Christ, we wouldn't have this Holy Spirit. If Christ had not come, we would not become one big family in Christ, and there would be no need to meet together as we do this morning. And if Christ had not come, we would not be heirs of the promise. But because Christ has come, we are family of God. I grew up in a small Baptist Church, and after service each Sunday morning, well, um, at the very last song, we would sing the song, The Family of God, and we would hold hands across the aisles, and then we would sing these words, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family 
of God. Nowadays, we don't hold hands as often. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel the sod, for I'm part of the family, the family of God. Church, because of what Christ has done, because Christ came, we are part of his family. It's not just about holding hands and singing a song. It's about treating one another as co-heirs of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ who have received God's amazing grace and have justified by faith and not by the works of the law. We have something incredibly powerful in common that should bind us together as believers. It doesn't matter our differences, our backgrounds, our ages, our stages, our race back ground because we are one in Christ and the manner in which Christ accomplishes his purposes is on the earth is not just through one of us but it's through us as a church and then we go and make disciples of all nations as God has called us accordingly and so first because Christ came we are no longer under the law because Christ came we are now members of his body and because Christ came as we continue to read in chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 we are adopted sons we are not just born again into the family of God but we are adopted and there is incredible significance to that in verses 1 through 7 Paul reminds these believers of the change that has occurred the transformation that has happened as they've placed their faith in Christ they are no longer slaves they are now sons once slaves they have now become sons how does Paul talk about that first by means of an analogy he says in verse 1 of chapter 4 now I say that the heir as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from the slave, though he is a master of all. When a, a child uh, has an inheritance, they are, do not receive that inheritance until they reach a certain age, until they grow up to a certain age. And so they may be the master of the house who will become the master of the house, but they're not treated like that because they still have Guardians, they still have stewards who are over them, and so they're treated as slaves and they're not treated as sons until the appointed time. And he uses this analogy to connect us with our experience prior to conversion. It says, Even so, we, when we were children, this is before we, prior, while we were still under the law, prior to having placed our faith in Christ, we're in bondage under the elements of the world, the basic principles of the world. When you think of the elements of the world or the basic principles of the world, the world would tell you if you want to get right, you got to do this and don't do that. Every other religion, man-made religion in the world will tell you if you want to get right with God, you do this and you don't do that. In regards to faith in Christ, it says it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. All you have to do is believe you put your faith in Christ. Now, do we participate in religion? Absolutely. But it's grounded in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it begins there. And so what Paul is basically saying is prior, we were, under, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But verse 4 says, and this is the story of Christmas. This is a verse that's worth memorizing. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. There is so much rich truth in that verse alone. First, it tells us, but when the fullness of time had come. What is the fullness of time? Well, some people say it's the time when Christ finally came and it was the perfect time. People had been waiting years for the Messiah to come. The law and the prophets foretold him, and then finally, 2,000 years ago, Christ came as a babe in a manger. What does it mean that it was the fullness of time? Some people say, well, it was the perfect time because this is a time in Roman history when there was Roman rule and you had the Roman roads, right? And you had the Hellenistic culture and everybody spoke Greek. And so it was very easy during this time for the gospel to spread in the manner that it did. And that might be part of it. God does what he's going to do and he's going to accomplish it through any means necessary. But when it refers to the fullness of time, it's talking about the fact that the law was no longer needed. The law served a necessary purpose, but a temporary purpose. It revealed our sin, but it pointed us to Christ. And at the perfect time, because God is never early, he's never late, he's always on time. When the fullness of time had come, Christ was revealed. And so it says, in the fullness of time had come, what happened? God sent forth his son, who is Jesus. This speaks of his deity. God sent forth his son. This speaks of Jesus, who is God, the second person of the Trinity. But when Jesus was born in a manger, not only was he fully God, he was fully man. And it not only speaks of his deity, the next statement speaks of his humanity. One surprise after another. And it says, when the fullness of time came, Christ came for, uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. <laughs> Why is that special, right? All of us were born of women, I'm, I'm sure. But what makes this different is because he was born of a, a virgin by the name of Mary. And that's the surprise of Christmas. Fully divine and fully man. Deity wrapped in humanity. And it says, born under the law. What does that mean? It means that Christ was born under the law and he fulfilled it perfectly. Why? Fully man, fully God. He is the only man who walked on this earth because he's fully God and fully man who is able to fulfill the law in order that when we exchange our filthy rags for his righteous robes, the reason we can take his righteous robe is because he's fulfilled the law perfectly. He was born under the law to what? To redeem those who were under the law. The law served a purpose. It was a prison. It was a tutor from which we needed to be delivered, and Christ redeemed us. The word redeem means to be, buy out of the slave market of sin, and this is the good news of Christmas. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Why? That we might receive adoption as sons. We're reminded of two incredibly important truths. Because Christ has come, we have been redeemed from the slave market of sin. We have received the righteousness of Christ. But not only that, he gives you a special place in his family. You become sons of the living God with all of the privileges that come with being a child of God. 
You know, that's good news for us this morning. Verse 6 says, and because you are sons. It doesn't end, folks. I mean, more benefits to come. More blessings to come. If there's anyone who has a reason to celebrate around, around this season, it's us. When we're singing carols and hymns concerning the coming of Christ, we should be the ones who are celebrating with the most passion and the most excitement. We should be the ones who, when we talk to people who don't know the true meaning of Christmas and they're talking about reindeer and Santa Claus, that we can point them to Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because of the good news. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit gives you the assurance that you belong to him. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, but the sheep know his voice. And when the shepherd calls, those who belong to him will follow. And when you have the Holy Spirit that takes up residence in your heart, when the shepherd calls you, you say, where you lead me, I will go. Like Samuel, speak for your servant is listening. And because we are sons, adopted sons of God, we can cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. From slaves to sons, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This is the good news of Christmas. Because Christ came, we are now adopted sons of the living God, heirs of his promise. If Christ had not come as a babe in a manger and died on the cross, we would not have these blessings and we would not have these Benefits. Number one, if Christ had not come, we would still be in our sin and we would still be in need of redemption. If Christ had not come, we would still be in need of adoption as sons of the living God. And the reason we're sons is not because of our performance, but because of his promise, not because of our behavior, but our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And so... First, because Christ came, we're no longer under the law as believers. Because Christ came, we are members of the family of God. Because Christ came, we are adopted sons of God, and, and we're going to inherit the promises of God. And because Christ came, lastly, we have a reason to be discerning. These are Galatian believers, many who are strong in their faith, who have strayed because false teachers have come in. And Paul points out the foolishness in these words. And he says this in verse 8. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those who were by nature are not gods. Paul says, I'm not even going to call them gods. Whatever you served before, I'm not going to call them gods. But you served them. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, because... You know, you didn't find him. We often think, and I found God. No, he found you. And then we found him as he revealed himself to us. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Listen, if you were a slave and now you're a son of God, why would you ever want to go back into bondage and become a slave of the law or anything else? Paul says, verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You're trusting in your religious activity and your observance of days in relationship to the Mosaic law to grant you salvation as a means of salvation. Paul said, why do you go back to be in bondage to that again? 
He says, I am afraid for you lest I have labored in vain. This morning, because we have been justified by faith and not by the works of the law, we have a reason to be discerning. We have a means by which we can be discerning. And the way that you spot a counterfeit is, number one, by knowing the truth. The letter of Galatians is a great letter. If ever someone from a a cult might come to you, a Christian cult, who might deny any of the core doctrines of the Christian faith, the orthodox teachings about Jesus, if ever they should come to your door and you're like, what scripture should I bring to them? If you're going to sit down and talk with them, don't even point one scripture. Just read to them Galatians. Sit down with them possibly. You know, the next time a JW comes to my house or a Mormon, I'm just going to sit down with them and say, hey, let's talk through the letter of Galatians. Let's read through the entirety of it and be reminded that Paul and how he declares the good news of the gospel and how he defends it. We are justified by faith and not by the works of the law in Christ, the one who came, who died, who rose, and who promises to come back again in glory. If you want to spot a counterfeit, get to know the truth. Secondly, if you want to spot a counterfeit, make sure you're in the right kind of Christian community. You know, I often have shared throughout this letter, let us not be so prideful to think that we are beyond the Galatians who have strayed. To think that nothing could fool us. No one could lead us astray when the reality is we can be gullible if you put us in the right circumstances. That's why we need good Christian community. So that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who, when we share with them some of the things we're thinking about and watching in regards to the truth of God's word, they can draw us back to the truth and say, hey, I don't know about that. Hey, have you thought about reading that? Hey, I I think that might be concerning, this person or that. And so it's important to be in good Christian community. And then thirdly, this morning, be able to spot a counterfeit by means of relying on the power of the Holy Spirit who resides in you. As you read the word, depend on the power of the Spirit and do life in Christian community, God will provide everything you and I need. You know, the story of Christmas is a story about one surprise after another. God, the creator of heaven and earth, condescended into the incarnation. Deity wrapped in humanity. Christ, the Lord, was born in a manger and died on a cross and offers salvation as a free gift to anyone who would receive it. The the story of Christmas is the story of one surprise after another, but it doesn't end in the Bible. We can continue to see the surprises of God as we pray for the lost to come to faith and watch how God works and moves in their hearts and their lives. Let me close with this this morning. God surprised us yesterday. Uh, We had the opportunity as a family for the Christmas musical. Our daughter was, was one of them in there, and so we went to all our neighbors, and we passed out invitations to our, our neighborhood, as many people as possible. And there was one person who said, hey, I'm coming. And we said, really? You're really coming? He said, yes, I am coming. We're like, I don't think he's coming. I don't think he's coming. 
But isn't it wonderful when God surprises you, when God act, when answers your prayers, even though we know he has the power to answer them. And that one neighbor made it all worth it as he came and he got to hear the gospel. And we're going to pray that he continues to allow that message to linger in his heart. Allow God to surprise you this Christmas as you invite somebody to dinner, as you invite them to Christmas Eve service, as you invite them to hear the message of the cross. Can we pray this morning? Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the truth of the gospel that as guilty sinners, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Thank you, Father, for all the benefits and the blessings that come with faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Thank you that although we were once slaves, we are now sons adopted and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts. Father, thank you for the story of Christmas that provides us one surprise after another. Father, I pray for the opportunities that we will have during this season as neighbors, as family members, as friends who don't know you will be more open to hearing the truth of the gospel now than possibly in other seasons. And I pray that we would seize the opportunity, that we would pray, not with a faith that wavers, but a faith of expectation, knowing that you can and will answer our prayers in accordance with your divine will for us. Father, we're grateful for these things. If there's someone here today who would say, you know, I've never truly understood the gospel that, that to, to have a personal relationship with Christ, I just need to believe. And I pray that they can express this right now if they see their need for you. Father, I recognize my need for Christ. I know I've missed the mark. I've fallen short. And, and there's a thing called sin in my life that separates me from you. But I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world he was born in a manger, died on the cross, and I confess him as my Savior and my Lord. Father, thank you for this time. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.